0: Thank you for listening to this recording of Family Bible Church's Sunday morning message. We pray that God will use this word to bless and encourage you. So last week we began looking at the word of the Lord, the word of Yahweh to the prophet Zechariah. And needless to say, probably Zechariah is not one of the most common books preached on in churches today. But it is, honestly, one of the most exciting books for us to study. I want to step back one step further than last week. We're going to talk about prophecy again in a moment. But on Wednesday, working with the kids, you know, I was asking them about how many um, divisions were in the book, the Bible, you know, Old Covenant, New Covenant, and why was it called that and stuff like that. And it was really kind of interesting to, to, to listen to the kids some of the kids from the church and stuff as well, and how much we presume that we know just because you're growing up in the church. So I want to step back because we've got a lot of new people who've come since then, and I I talk about Yahweh a lot, and 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 so like if you don't know why I'm doing that, it's kind of like weird, like oh is this guy a cult guy or what? And so so like we got Zechariah, we're studying Zechariah, and my subtitle is Yahweh's zeal for Zion, but that's really four for consonants together a Y H W H. You know, I don't spell it Y-A-H-W-E-H like some do, and that's okay. It's all good. And so what's going on? Why do I do that? Um, For those who don't comprehend it, so in the Old Covenant, or in the, well, throughout the Bible, but primarily it's an Old Testament thing, whenever you see capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D in the Bible, that is Yahweh's name. That's Yahweh. That's why, so it's Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh. So, Yod-Heh-Vav-Heh comes over into the English as the Yod is the Y, the Heh is the H, the the Vav is the W, or a V, and and then the Heh, again, as the the H. So, so Hebrew is built as a a 3 consonantal language, okay? So, the word Yahweh, the name Yahweh, because it is his name, actually is a derivation of the Hebrew word Hayah, okay, which means to be. It's just a to be verb. Okay, so like when you think about something to be. And so Yahweh is a derivation of that, and it literally means the one who exists, to exist. Okay, and so he, he just is. And so that's why when, when Moses comes to the burning bush, and, and he's told to take off his sandals because the place he's at was holy ground, and he's asked God, who comes to him, he says, well, who should I say sent me? He says, tell him I am sent you. I am that I am. Okay? That's literally what his name means. He is the one who exists, which is really, again, kind of exciting. And I, I know this is kind of free. It's kind of added on. Okay? But in the basis of all philosophy, so getting, to, taking the, the Christianity is just a subset of religion, which is just a subset of philosophy from the world's perspective. So I, I get, so going from the world's perspective. But the basis of all philosophy is the uncaused cause. There has to be an uncaused cause. Does that make sense? So, in the beginning, oh wait, I'm sorry, I messed up. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by blank. Okay, now you guys, if you understand the the scriptures, I just partially quoted Hebrews 11, verse 3. By faith we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God. Okay? However, you can turn around and you can fill anything in the blank you want because it talks about the uncaused cause. By faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by a gaseous explosion. By a big bang. Now, it doesn't say that in the Bible, but literally, that's what an evolutionist says. Were they there? They weren't there. Do you get it? So, whatever you fill in the blank with fills in what your philosophical viewpoint is, which is the basis of your religion. Do you get it? Yahweh. Gives himself the name, I am. He is the uncaused cause. Do you get it? It's so exciting. I mean, that's literally what he took as his name. I exist. You exist. I exist because he exists. Do you get this? I mean, it's just... So anyways, so it's a little bit of a a mind-boggling thing, but it's important as we play this thing out, okay? Because we're going to talk about, I talk about Yahweh a lot, and Zechariah is going to be talking about Yahweh a lot, okay? And so then we talk about Yahweh Sabaoth, okay? So when you see the Lord of hosts, again, we talked about this last week, the word Sabaoth or host isn't a choir, like when we think about, you know, when we think about Christmas, we think about... The, the angels and their their harps and their, their dancing and their singing. It, that's not what it says. That's not what it is. They are warriors. The host is literally an army. There was an army that was surrounding Bethlehem at the time. Why? Because there was a spiritual war that was going on. We're going to talk about the spiritual war even more um, as we go through here and as we're going through Jeremiah in the morning, uh, in the Sunday, Sunday school time. That there's this spiritual war that's going on behind the scenes that we don't see. And so we know from the book of Revelation that Satan was there ready to devour Jesus when he was given birth. But God had his army surrounding and protecting. It's it's an exciting thing. Zechariah was given these visions of the coming of Yahweh. Now, you need to focus on this, okay? Because Yahweh is the eternal one. Okay, we're told in the book of Isaiah, and I don't have time to go there right now, but Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 48, if you read those nine chapters, it's mind-boggling what all Yahweh declares about himself that is also declared about Jesus. Okay, Yahweh declares in Isaiah 43, verse 10 and 11, Says he says, there was no God before me, neither shall there be any formed after me. I alone am the Savior. Okay, so he alone is God. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. He alone is the Savior. But we see this about Jesus, okay? And we're told that Yahweh, here as we get to Zechariah, and we're going to see it today, in this passage, very clearly, Yahweh is going to come, and he's going to come, and he's going to dwell on the earth he already has. And he's going to again. And it's so exciting. The deity of Jesus Christ comes out. And this is Old Testament. This isn't New Testament. New Testament. Jehovah Witness, Mormons come to the door, and they say, where does this say that Jesus is God? It says it throughout the the entire Bible. In fact, we're going to look at Isaiah 48 today. It is so clear in here in Zechariah chapter 2. It's so clear in Zechariah chapter 8. It's so clear that Yahweh's going to come to the earth. In fact, toward the end of our study in Zechariah, and so weeks down the road, we're going to see that Yahweh declares, you will look upon me whom you have pierced. That's pretty clear. 2020, hindsight's what? 2020. So let's talk about prophecy in a second. I shared this a little bit last week. We're not going to go as in-depth as we did last week, but you've got to understand the telescopic nature of prophecy. See, And I joked about this being Chuck and Karen last week on their hike, but think of this as Zechariah. When Zechariah gets his prophecy, everything is what? His future. It's way out there. He's looking way out here, and I don't have my pictures of of Mount Adams in Mount Rainier today, okay? And I don't have my picture of uh, Mount St. Helens being played into that with the clouds, okay? But you kind of get the same picture here because here we have these two mountains way out here. So as he's looking, he's see, seeing this thing because it looks pretty prominent, but there's also what? This mountain behind it. I want to submit to you that that's Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, or maybe flipped in a sense, okay? But the idea is he's looking out there and he's seeing the coming of Messiah. He's seeing the coming of Yahweh, Okay? But when he's looking out there, he's saying a whole lot of stuff. And so, like in Jeremiah today, as we're looking at Jeremiah 30 going into 31, and we finish 31, we see in the middle of Jeremiah 31 this this joyousness because the, the, the Israel is coming back, and it's post-exilic, which I say the big term, when they came back from their exile in Babylon, okay? And there's going to be all this rejoicing, but but we know that it's talked about being in the latter days. So it's really not that. It's really talking about what the days you're living in right now with Israel being returned to the land from all over the, from the nations, okay? It's really an exciting time that we live in today. But right in the middle of it, right in the middle of it, we read about Rachel weeping, bitter weeping for the loss of her children, lamentations. When was that quoted? In Matthew, regarding the birth of Christ, when when Herod tried to destroy Jesus and he couldn't destroy Jesus because God had Joseph take him down into Egypt but Herod went down and he killed all the babies and we're told that that was a fulfillment of this prophecy in Jeremiah 31 really an exciting stuff it wasn't for the the people living in Bethlehem on that day but God says right on the end of it he says but look have strength don't weep i've got something better for you to come and that's something for us to remember that even when th- bad things happen and bad things are going to get worse Okay, I'm I'm not a I'm not a what do you call it um, a fatalist. Okay? But I'm a biblicist. Okay? And as you study the word of God, you realize that persecution's going to come. It already is throughout the world. We think as Americans we get a buy. We need to be ready to be able to stand, having done all to stand. Okay? It's a spiritual war that we're living in. So, Jeremiah Jeremiah. Zechariah is looking out there, okay? And he's having, seen these things. And as he's looking, there are some biblical prophecies that have a split or what I call partial fulfillments. So illustration I've used a lot in Sunday school as we've been going through Jeremiah is for the Jews when they, when, and the disciples when they say to Jesus, but we thought that Elijah was supposed to come. Not you, but another Elijah, right? We thought Elijah was supposed to come, right? And the answer was, he has come. He has come. Who was Elijah? John the Baptist, but we know we know that in Revelation chapter eleven there will be two witnesses at the temple. Potentially, to this potential conjecture, one of those is Elijah; the other is probably Moses, based upon the 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 um, miracles. The second. Well, Mount of Transfiguration, yes, we look back to that. But the things that they are able to do that were recorded as being done in Revelation 11, it gives an indicator that those probably are the two. But one of the things we're going to talk about as we come into this is the prophecy is that we've got to be careful about conjecture. Okay, God gives details in his words. Does it make sense? A lot of modern theology is based on conjecture, based upon logic. And we've got to be careful of that. Now, there is some things that we seek to compare spiritual things with spiritual things. We're going to talk about that today in somewhat, a little bit of detail, okay? But it's important for us to understand certain things because, do you remember the Berean Christians? Anybody remember who the Berean Christians were? Who were they? They studied the word every day. Who was telling them the word? Paul. Paul. The Apostle Paul. I mean, Paul. The one who got the word of God. And they had the audacity to check Paul out. And Paul commended them and said, they're the most noble because they search the scriptures daily, seeking to find out whether the things that I'm saying are true. That's why I challenge you guys. Check the scriptures. Search it. Check me out. Look, James three one says, "Be not many masters or teachers, for such of the greater condemnation." I will give an account to God for everything I teach, and I firmly believe that. I want you to study the scriptures. If I'm not teaching truth, I really want it to be borne out, even before the end of the service. You know, where we have a question and the answer. Even now, say, "Bob, whoa, Bob, whoa, whoa, wait, wait, stop," because it was a dialogue, right? If I'm not teaching truth, I want it to be known. Makes sense? Tell me I'm wrong. Show me I'm wrong, because I want to teach truth. God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. Truth. Okay, so as we consider the promise of Yahweh's coming to Zion, there are multiple fulfillments. The first coming to bring redemption to man. The second coming to bring reign to Jerusalem. Okay, so we need to think about those things as we come back in. Again, we understand more looking back than was ever understood before. Okay, especially now that Israel is being brought back into the land. Now, what's really, really exciting, and I know you can't read all this, but you can go to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I'll give you a moment to find it, okay? What's really exciting about all this is that God had, through Moses, way back before Israel even entered into the land, God had already prophesied that all this stuff was going to occur. That Israel was going to go into the land, that they were going to turn over, they were, going to, they were going to look to idols. God was going to have to punish them. He was going to send them, he was going to scatter them into the nations. And then scattering them into the nations, at some point, they would turn back to Yahweh. And when he turned back to Yahweh, he would bring them back into the land. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, before, before they ever go into the land, God's warning them about this. Don't do it. But this is what's going to happen. So let me read it. He says, take heed to yourselves, lest you forget the covenant of Yahweh your God, which he made with you, and make yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which Yahweh your God has forbidden you. For Yahweh your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. When you beget, beget children and grandchildren, have grown old in the land, and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything, and do evil in the sight of Yahweh your God, to provoke him to anger, I call heaven and earth to witness against you this day, that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And Yahweh will scatter you among the peoples, nations. And you will be left few in number among the nations where Yahweh will drive you. And there you will serve God's the works of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there, you will seek Yahweh your God and you will find Him if you seek Him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days... When? In the latter days. days. Don't miss it. Details are important. This isn't just talking about the exile and coming back from Babylon. God's actually... Putting this partial fulfillment thing going on, the ultimate fulfillment of this is going to be when? In the latter days. I submit to you, we're living in those days. Now, I'm not a prophet, a son of a prophet. Jesus could have returned today. It may be Jesus comes back in 300 years from now. I don't know. Okay? But Israel has become a nation again. She has been brought back over 1,900 years, she has been brought back into her land. God is one more time working through her people. Go back and, and study the Six Day War. You will be amazed at what God did. The the, the secular world doesn't get it. They're going to point it all the second, but look at what God did and how God delivered them, how, delivered this little bitty nation from these three nations that surrounded them, who were intent on pulverizing them, and God wouldn't allow it. It's an amazing thing. Okay, in the latter days, when you turn to Yahweh your God and obey His voice, for Yahweh your God is a merciful God. He will not forsake you, nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he swore to them. Why? Because Yahweh is a faithful God. God will not forsake those he's made a covenant with. Now, this is extremely important as we consider his covenant with Israel. As we talked about from Jeremiah 31, okay? That only if you can destroy the covenant that God made with the sun, moon, and the stars only if you can measure the heavens above or the depths below can you destroy the covenant that God made with his people Israel this is extremely important because if you can alter or if you can destroy the covenant that God made with Israel then what then what god's not god. say again logic god well okay he's still god but he's not a he's not a faithful god and if god's not a faithful god then what about his promise to you it It doesn't exist, but there's no surety in it. If God's going to change the covenant that he made, and he said that all these things I've sworn by my own holiness, only if you can destroy the covenant that I've made with the sun, moon, and the stars, only if you can measure the heights above or the depths below, if, if all those things could play out and God lies, then nothing you believe is true. You're wasting your time being here. Do you get it? This is huge. God is chesed nemet. He is faithful and true. He is the one who is always, you can count on all the time. His justice is true all the time. His grace is true all the time. His love never fails. We talked about it from Jeremiah today. His loving kindness is always there. It is olam. It is beyond the, the, um, the horizon. The concept of olam is beyond the horizon. You can't keep going. You keep going to the horizon, but you never get to beyond the horizon. God's love never ends. So, as we come then into this portion of Zechariah, we begin, why I had um, Chuck reading early, is because we have these, these, these portents, these visions, that God gives, Yahweh gives to Zechariah. And the first one he gives... Um, re- refers to four horses, and then he refers to four horns with four craftsmen. And so you see four, four, four. And so I was going to blow through this, just blow past this. You know, I, I, you know there's certain things you just don't want to, you know, just blow past it, get on with the good stuff, right? And yesterday morning, I woke up with God smacking me and beating me up, telling me that I needed to research four. I needed to check out four. And so, four actually occurs 328 times in 282 verses. And so, yes, I did study every single one of those verses yesterday morning. I was glad that everybody else went to the Good News Club training because at my house it was peaceful. And I spent the entire morning going verse to verse to verse looking at the number four. I felt like I was in Sesame Street. Today's message (laughs) is brought to you by the number four. Anyways. It was exciting. I'm glad I did it because it opened up some of these other things that I said I'm not going to even worry about it. So, I'm going to grab my paper. I don't have time for everybody to turn to these, but I'm putting them up here. They're on your sermon note sheets. You can check me out on this later, okay? But I'm going to go through and I'm going to be the, the the FedEx guy running through, doing all that you know, small print at the bottom of the of the page, and tell you what all these are about. Okay? Yeah, it's like one of these uh, prescription medications. Okay, Genesis chapter 2, verse 10. There's four rivers which break off of the river that goes out of Eden. So there's a river that goes out of Eden. From that river, it breaks into four. Okay? Now I can go more into that, but I don't want to go into more of that. This is just what I wrote down. That's what, what it is. But you'll understand more about that in a moment. Numbers chapter 2. The tribes are the the position of the tribes around the um, um Tabernacle are in four directions. There are three in each of four directions. So you have Judas, Simeon, or for you guys, it's Judas, Simeon, and Gad. Then it's, uh, wait, don't tell me. Judah, I'm messing up. Judas, Simeon, and Gad, Reuben, Issachar, and Zebulun, um, Ephraim, Manasseh, and their younger brother, Benjamin, and then Dan, Asher, and Naphtali up north, okay? And so, you kind of look at me. Kind of, strange. I purposely memorized those years ago and try to keep working them. There's a reason why God tells us who they are. I haven't t- can't tell you I fully got all of it, okay? but there's a reason why God does that. Okay? One of the things here is coming out today. It's kind of really kind of fun. But there are four directions, three in each direction. We have 1 Corinthians 18, verses 32 to 35. Elijah, this is Elijah on Mount Carmel fighting the, the prophets of Baal. Okay, say again. What did I say? First King,'s it's fir- No, it's first Kings. You said something. Oh, I said something. All right, forget what I said. First Kings. First King's 18. Okay. First King's 18. This is, this is Elijah on Mount Carmel fighting against the prophets of Baal. He tells the servants to get him four bowls of water. And he tells them to get him four bowls of water three times. Kind of an interesting thing. Okay, I don't know. I just wrote it down. It's just struck me as God. Now I'm I'm skipping the ones where so so and so was lived seven hundred and four years and so-and-so lived so you know, da. So I'm missing I'm skipping those fours there. But in uh 2 Kings chapter 7, verse 3, and then forward, you have the leprous men who proclaimed the good news. How many leprous men were there? Four. I don't know why there's four, there could have been just one, but they're we're specifically told that there were four. I thought that was kind of interesting. I wrote it down. Okay? 1 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 24 there are gatekeepers who are assigned to the temple. Guess how many gatekeepers there are? Four. Do you know where they're established? In each of the four directions. Okay? Job 1 19. When his, his children are, are, are destroyed by the winds, guess how the winds hit the house? From the four corners. Four winds hit four corners. Kind of an interesting little thought process there, too. Proverbs 30, verse 15 to 31. There are four groupings of four marvels. That's kind of an interesting thing. Jeremiah 49, verse 36. Elam will be scattered by the four winds into the four corners of the earth. Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 5 and following. And Ezekiel chapter 10, verse 8 and following. Specifically, verse 17 of chapter 1 and verse 11 of chapter 10. There were four cherubim okay, who had four faces. They had four wheels, right? And they went and they went in what? Four directions. four directions. They never missed a direction. They went this way, then this way, then this way, then this way. They went in directions. They went in four directions, okay? Ezekiel 7, verse 1 to 3. The end has come to the, to the four corners of the land. Ezekiel 37, verse 9. The valley of dry bones. Quote, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain. Daniel chapter 11, verse 4. This is, we assume, Alexander, but Alexander's kingdom would be divided into what? Four, okay? And they would go to the four winds. Matthew 24, verse 31, and also Mark 13, verse 27. The angels will gather the elect from the four winds. Revelation chapter 4, Revelation chapter 5, Revelation chapter 7, all refer to the four living creatures, I believe the same ones in Ezekiel 1 and 10, who are the protectors of the throne of God. Revelation chapter 7, verse 1 to 3, you have four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth. A lot of fours, right? That the wind should not blow on the earth, on the sea, or on any tree. Quote, do not harm the earth, the sea, or the trees, till we have sealed the servants of God on their foreheads. And those were the Israelites. Revelation 20, verse 7 to 8. Now, when the thousand years have expired, that's the millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be released from his prison and will go to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together to battle. So, going through there, do you see a continuity of four? What does four represent? Say again. Directions. The directions. All the directions. The directions of the earth. Literally, it means what? Which literally means what? Everywhere. All around. Okay? That, that it's going to be everywhere. Okay? So the use of four in Scripture, in a sense, means surrounding. Okay? Very important. Can it mean otherwise? It can mean otherwise. I want to be careful of that. It can mean otherwise. But clearly, the predominant use of this, John? And there's you left off the day four of creation. Yeah, that's what I said. So I, I left off the, the, all the ordinals fours. So, we could use day four, but there was day one, day two, day three, day four. Day four, you know, he made the what? Stars. The sun, moon, and stars. Yeah. So, but I don't, that, that doesn't play out for everything else, is what I'm saying. So, so, first we get to the four horses, okay? There are many people who say, ah, the four horses, that reminds me of what? Revelation chapter six. You got the four horses, right, of the apocalypse. The problem is the four horses of the apocalypse, right, are white, then red, then black, and then what? Putrid, <laughs> puky green. Okay, because it's 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 death. Okay, it's 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 death. Okay, and, and so the word that's there is kind of this yellowish greenish pukish color is what it is. Okay, so whatever you want a word you want to put in there. Okay, here we have a red horse who's in front of a red, black, and sorrel horse. Okay, they're not the same colors. Secondly, the timing is, again, in the uh, the apocalypse, they come one after another. These horses all what? Come they come together. Finally, the ones in the apocalypse seem to be rulers, okay? Because the white horse comes and there's a guy on it. We're talking more about the person on the horse rather than the horse itself, right? Because the one who's riding on a horse has a sword, okay? And so... Everybody thinks that that brings peace. That's peace, but it has nothing to do with peace. It's a white horse, which means victory, and he's carrying a sword, which means that he got the, the victory through what? Through warfare, okay? The next horse is the red horse. He's actually carrying a scimitar, in a sense, around it. It's the sword that is used for sacrificing, okay? And so he is bringing bloodshed, okay? And then you've got the black horse, which is bringing um, famine and, and uh, financial earthquake on the earth. And then you have the last horse, which is, which is bringing death. That's not, not at all talked about in Zechariah chapter 1, so it's kind of hard to say that these are the four, same four horses. It doesn't make sense to me, okay? But we're told in verse 10, as Chuck was reading, okay, I'm not going to read back through this stuff, but as Chuck was reading, look at verse 10, we're told specifically who these horses are. We're told that these are the ones whom Yahweh has sent to walk to and fro throughout the earth. That kind of makes sense when we're talking about four. Where were they walking? Everywhere, for the four corners of the earth, for the four winds. Make sense? And so we see that they were riding and they reported to the angel of Yahweh. Now, this is important as well because there's some misunderstanding here as well that some people are going to believe that the, the, the rider on the red horse is the angel of Yahweh, but he's not. Read specifically. Again, details are important. What it states here. Look at verse 10. It's, oh, sorry. Verse, uh, verse 8, verse 8. I saw by night, and behold, a man, what? Riding. riding. He's not standing at this moment. He's what? Riding. He's riding on a red horse. And it, then it stood among the myrtle trees, and behind them were horses, red, sorrel, and white. Okay? Red, sorrel, and white. I said red, black, and sorrel, but red, sorrel, and white. And so, so what you've got is you've got this rider coming in, and behind him you have what? Three. They're riding in. They come to the myrtle trees, and they what? And they stop. When they stop there, why do they stop there? Because there's somebody else who's there, okay? And then they wind up reporting, verse 11 then, so they answered the angel of Yahweh who stood among the myrtle trees. So these these riders come in, and they give a report. They give a report to the angel of Yahweh, to the messenger of Yahweh, okay? Does that track? Everybody tracking with that, okay? So you've got to kind of picture this thing, because part of these vision things is you got to kind of picture what's going on, okay? So you got... Zechariah, he's standing there, right? And he's looking, and he's watching this thing, and he sees these four horses walking in, one in front of the others. I don't know why one's in front of the other. We're not told that. We're just told that there's two red horses. The one in front's a red horse, and behind them are a red, white, and sorrel. That's all we're told. That's all I'm going to go on. it. I'm not going to tell you anything about those horses other than that. Make sense? So they come in, okay? But what we're told then is they're coming in then, as we understand, four from all around, and they give a report, to the angel of Yahweh, who I'm going to submit to you, the angel of Yahweh is Jesus Christ, who is Yahweh himself. The angel of Yahweh is just an incarnation of Yahweh himself. Okay, it is, So when you go back to um, Genesis chapter 18, check me out on this, I don't have time to go back. But when Yahweh comes to talk to, to Abraham, he comes and he talks to him in person, face to face. Okay, And so and there are numerous then occurrences of the angel of Yahweh where the angel of Yahweh accepts worship as well. Okay? So they're riding and they give a report to the angel of to the angel of Yahweh. Okay? So this is what Zechariah is seeing. So he sees these four horses, they come, they give a report. Okay? Zechariah chapter six, verse one to eight says, beginning verse five, says four chariots are four horses who go from before Yahweh. So I put all this together. I think these four horsemen are four angels who are sent out by God to the four directions to check out the earth to bring back a report. Last week, we talked about the report. What was the report? Anybody remember? They're, they're at ease. Beyond rest, they're at ease. They're just chilling. They're, they're all about themselves. Okay? So that's their report. And then we slide from these four horsemen into these this four horns with the four craftsmen that are all together. Okay? Now, again, what are they? What, what is all this about? Four horns. You know, are, they, are, they, are these shofars? Are they, are they horns coming out of a, a ram's head? You know, from us, we have these different terms for horn. Um, and so these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. These are the horns that have scattered Israel. So, hmm, okay. So did they scatter them by blowing them? What is a horn? Well, in Daniel chapter 7, in, verse, in chapter 8, we read about these horns that come okay not necessarily these horns but horns in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 and we're told about that a horn is a representation of a ruler or a nation okay and so we're told about specifically then about Alexander how he's a great horn but then his horn is going to be broken off and in its place it's going to be replaced with four horns and those four horns are going to go to the four winds okay so horns represent certain things. Now, there is also in Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 then four nations that are described. People who are from a reformed perspective. Now, I know for some this may kind of be like and that's okay. If it's going over your head, let it go over your head. It's really okay. Okay? I kind of I kind of look at teaching like a smorgasbord. Okay? You go to Golden Corral, you're not eating everything that's on the on the on the buffet. You're going to eat certain things. And and I promise you Marsha and I probably come back with different, different plates. Make sense? I'm grabbing stuff different than she is. Okay, And so there's going to be things that I enjoy, things that she enjoys. It, so I'm, I'm kind of doing this when I'm, I'm presenting. Okay, So if, if some of this is going to go over your head, let it go over your head. It's really okay. Um, but for those who are interested in, in, in this part of it, okay, this is critical. Those who are a Reformed or covenantal perspective, they want to see these four horns that we're going to be talking about in Zechariah As Babylon, Medo Persia, Greece, and Rome, because they don't want to believe that God is once again going to work through Israel. Okay? And because the church, they make the church Israel and Israel the church, okay? Because they do that, okay? And that that all starts way back with Romanism, okay? Um, Back in the days of Constantine, okay? When the, the Roman church chose to become Israel. Okay, And I can talk more about that. I have a lot more to say about that, but I, I'm not at this moment, okay? because it's not preach against, it's preach for. But, but all that plays in, and so the reformers, they were reforming the Roman church rather than going for truth. Okay, And so they want to continue to be Israel, whereas God said, no, man, Israel's still my chosen people. It's just who they are. Okay, And so they want to make it Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. The problem with that is that it doesn't make any sense when it plays into here. We already saw the word for refers to what? Directions, right? And when, when he's going to bring them back, up, up, flee from the land of the north, says Yahweh, for I've spread you abroad like the four winds of heaven. He spreads them abroad like the four winds of heaven. And when he brings them back, I want you to ask, ask this question to yourself if, if it matters to you, okay? Babylon, they came and they destroyed Jerusalem, yes? Yes? What about Medo-Persia? Did they destroy Jerusalem? No. Who did they destroy? Babylon. Do you get it? Medo-Persia has nothing to do with Israel. Other than it was God used Medo-Persia to do what? (laughs) Send them back! To rebuild the temple! This has nothing to do with this. So this nation wasn't one of the ones who actually scattered them. Make sense? So so it doesn 't refer to them. I guess is what where i 'm going here i don 't want to spend a lot of time on it. It has nothing to do with them, but be careful because again, as you read commentaries, if you 're reading a commentary, even your study Bibles, okay, a lot of study Bibles have reformed people putting their comments in there. okay and If you read those study Bibles and you 're looking at their commentaries down there, find out. So I always recommend Charles Rary or John macarthur okay they 're out there. If you use those, those guys are good as far as giving you theology, quote-unquote, okay? And so you got to be careful. In ESV, the ESV was written by reforms for reformed reformed persuasion, okay? So consumer beware. That's all I'm saying. It's free, but there's a reason why they wrote it, okay? Isaiah 11. I want everybody to go to Isaiah 11, because this gives us the actual answer. This is amazing. God has it in his word. Isaiah 11 and yes, I actually found this while I was looking through all the fours. The fours were with me. Anyways. I've been waiting. I've been waiting for oh, all message for that. Anyways. Isaiah 11, beginning of verse 10. And in that day there shall be a root of Jesse who shall stand as a banner to the people for the Gentiles, Who? The Gentiles shall seek him, and his resting place shall be glorious. And it shall come to pass in that day that the Lord shall set his hand again the second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left. Do you read that? He's going to do it what? A second time. time, Which doesn't mean the exile. This means that even beyond the exile, God already knows he's going to bring them back once, and then he's going to bring them back again and at that time the gentiles are going to be a part of it how exciting is this huh so he's going to gather them together second time to recover the remnant of his people who are left from assyria and egypt from pathros and cush from elam and shinar from hamath and the islands of the sea how many froms four how many directions four where is god gathering his people from for the, the for the core corners of the earth it's pretty simple isn't it i don't have to make this into to babylon medo persian all this kind of stuff it's just exactly what it wants what what, what it says but then we get to these craftsmen this is kind of fun this is the only thing i have to tell you about the craftsmen this is really kind of exciting who are the craftsmen? The craftsmen are coming to terrify them, to cast out the horns of the nations that lifted up their horn against the land of Judah to scatter it. In 2 Samuel 5, 11, you'll read the, what the word craftsman is because in some of your Bibles, you may have carpenters there or you may have engravers there. They were actually craftsmen. So a carpenter is a craftsman of wood. A mason is a craftsman of stone. A little aside, Joseph, the father of Jesus, wasn't a carpenter. He was a craftsman. Small little thing, but who is God? Who is Yahweh? He's the ultimate what? Craftsman. He's the ultimate master craftsman. How cool is that? So when, when, he, when he came to the earth, he would be the son of a what? Master craftsman. Isn't that kind of cool? Anyways, a little aside. So anyways, the craftsmen, they come though. They have a purpose, and that is to terrify and to cast out the horns of the nations. So what's the importance of all this? There exists a spiritual war. There are these nations that are out there that are gathering together, these horns, that are continually gathering together, okay, against Israel. They want to destroy the plan of God. Now, is it people? Is it man? No. Where ultimately is the war? It's a spiritual war. Who is in charge of the enemy? Satan. Satan. There's a satanic plot going on here. It never, ever ends. Do you know why Hitler did what Hitler did? It's part of the spiritual war. Satan's always trying to do what? Destroy Israel. But what what he meant for evil, God meant for good. Because how did Israel begin to be regathered into the land? (laughs) Through the Holocaust and through the programs of Russia. So what... Satan meant for evil by using the Tsars and by using Hitler to try to destroy God's chosen people. God actually used to plant them one more time into the land. How cool is that? The church has always grown the strongest, the greatest, the fastest during times of persecution. Not times of pleasure. We fall apart. We go into Christian hedonism. Christian hedonism? Really? That's an oxymoron. It's like military intelligence. <laughs> Anyways, sorry guys. Uh, I was signal. Anyways, so it just doesn't go together. We're not here to please ourselves. We're here to serve our God. Do you get it? God is sovereign. Over all the affairs of men, what God has declared, even thousands of years ago, it will happen. Even if I don't see it, do you know how I know it's So, because <laughs> God said so, That's the Bible tells me so. But Bible is God's word, so it doesn't matter what the book says; it's a matter of what God it says. Do you get it? That's what's incredible. That's what's incredibly important here. There is a spiritual war. There will be those who will seek to continually scatter and destroy Israel. But Yahweh is continually her defender. And that's what we're going to look at here real quick. The demeanor of his turn, he's going to come with passion. He's going to come with compassion. We talked about this last week, so I don't want to spend more time on it. But he has a zeal, a jealousy for, for, for Israel that's overwhelming. But he's going to come with mercy and compassion for them when he comes. But when he comes... This is exciting to me. He's going to set up his residence. Yes, I intentionally put what I put up there. Okay, There are a lot of people who are anti-Israel. Shame on you. I'm not saying that Israel is good. They're not. They are secularists. They, they are looking for the things of this world. They're laying up treasures on this earth. However... They are God's chosen people, regardless of what I think or not. Does that make sense? And God will establish them one more time. And as we get again to the end of this book, we're going to find out they're going to look upon him whom they have pierced, and they're going to mourn for him. They're going to mourn. They're going to cry, because they're going to realize after all these years, they've blown it. Revelation chapter 11, or Revelation, Romans chapter 11 says, and all Israel will be saved. You can say what you want. I'm going to stand on the word of God. Israel is God's chosen people. He will not change what he has uttered. He will not go against his holiness. They are his. And what's exciting is, he's not just choosing them. He's going to come, and he's going to live there. So we have in chapter 1, where he begins this state, this comment, which he's going to pick up again then, in chapter 2, and he's going to carry on with it, where he says that he is going to build his residence there, in their midst. I left my my, my notepad, my, my, no, that's Jeremiah. That's why I looked during that last time. I looked down and I went, oh, I left that folder in my bag back there. I have everything. So I print it out and I put everything colorized on my own sheet so I, I can look down. Rather than looking at this, I actually look at what I've printed out and I've colorized so I can see it. So now, now I've got to find it because I have it in, highlighted on my paper. But he says when he comes down, um, where is it? No, because I won't find it that fast. There it is, verse 16. Therefore, thus says Yahweh, I am returning to Jerusalem with mercy, with rachum. My house shall be, what? Built in it, and a surveyor's line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. When do you use the surveyor's line? When you're ready to what? When you're ready to build. Gosh, so we just had the surveyors out because the, 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 the developers in the back gave us a little bit of property behind the chapel here, right? And so we had the surveyors come out so they could survey all this stuff. And while they're doing it, they surveyed John's property here next to it because they were giving him a little bit of a triangle because he has a driveway that's going to come off of here. So, so though they gave us this, we're, we're quick claiming then part of that plus part of the original to John, being good neighbors, loving our neighbor as herself, so that he can have his driveway. Make sense? It doesn't matter to us. It's better for him to have his driveway. So, so all that happens, but we had to have a surveyor come out. And they had to survey the property god says i'm coming i'm building my house i'm sending out the surveyors it's happening do you want to know when we knew that things were really getting ready to happen back there when they sent out the surveyors and they started to measure the lots and they started to mark the lots and all of a sudden there were surveyor markers everywhere god says send out the surveyors it's happening the surveyors line is coming out this is going to happen this is very 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 exciting to me Okay, I know. I, and I'm not just, I don't have my note sheet here. Um, scream, scream ecstatically because this is, you know, let them think it's exciting. It really is exciting to me. This stuff is just mind-boggling, okay? So we have his proclamation, but in his protection in chapter 2, when he comes now, we read in chapter 2, beginning of verse 3, and there was the angel who talked with me coming out, and another was coming out to meet him, and said, run, speak to this young man, saying, Jerusalem shall be inhabited as towns without walls, as towns without what? not saying that there's not going to be walls, but it's going to be inhabited so much that it's going to be like a town without walls. They're going to be coming so much that they're going to be expanding where? Everywhere. Outside the walls. Outside the walls. They're going to be expanding outside. They're going to be expanding so much they're going to go outside the walls. They, the, the walls can't contain them anymore, okay? Because of the multitude of men and livestock in it. For I, says Yahweh, will be a what? A wall of fire around her. I will be the glory in her midst. Some pictures here. Wall of fire. Does it sound like anything to anybody? The wall of fire. Not the pillar. Not the pillar. We're going to talk about the pillar in a second, the glory. I couldn't hear you, Mark. Okay, that still goes back to, the, to the, the pillar. We'll come back to that again in the glory. But you're right. He protected them. How about when Elisha had his servant there, and they were being surrounded by the enemy, right? And Elisha's kind of like, it's no problem. And, and the servant was like, what? A really big we got a problem. We got a problem. I mean, look at that. They're all coming against us. The cherries are here. Oh, this is really awesome. And, and it's like, dude, there's more for us than there against us. You're not looking right. And finally, he says, Lord, Yahweh, would you please open up my servant's eyes so he can really see? And when the servant's eyes were opened, what did he see? Chariots of what? Fire. Chariots of fire that were surrounding them. They were surrounded by a wall of fire. Chariots of fire were surrounding them. Nothing could touch them because of the protection of God. All things work together for good to those who love God and are the called according to his purpose. There is no troublesome situation that has overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful in that he will not allow you to be troubled beyond what you are able to bear. God has got a wall of fire around his people. And nothing can touch his people unless he says, make a parting and let them in. That's what he did for Judah and Israel. He parted the wall so that those nations could come in and they could chasten his people. But then he kicked them back out. And he says, I'm bringing them back. And I will be the wall of fire about them. I will be the glory in her midst. The Shekhinah The tabernacling glory of God is exactly what you guys were talking about. He was a pillar of fire by night and a pillar of cloud by day. And He gave them guidance and direction and protection from Egypt when when they were about, when the Egyptians came about them. God says, I will be, I will be the glory in her midst. This is really, really exciting, okay? Because think about what he's saying here, okay? I will be, I will be. Now, you can make this very symbolic and say, well, okay, God, it can be like this. But get where we're going to go here in just a second, what he's saying. Because he's now saying that he literally is going to come. Look at verse 10. Sing and rejoice, O daughter of Zion. For behold, I am coming, and I will what? Say it all together. Dwell where? In your midst, says who? Says Yahweh. Says Yahweh. This isn't capital L, little o, little r, little d. This isn't Adonai, which you could say. Well, okay, that's just that's just Jesus. No, who is saying this? Yahweh. Who is Yahweh? The creator of the heavens and the earth. Do you get this? He is the creator of the heavens and the earth. He is the one who breathes the breath of life into us. And Yahweh is the one who there is no other Savior, there's no other God. And Yahweh says, Behold, I am coming, and I will dwell in your midst. When does this say that God will become a man? I think this is pretty clear. I'm going to come, and I'm going to dwell in your midst. And if you didn't get it, look at verse 11. Many nations shall be joined to Yahweh in that day, and they shall become my people, and I will dwell in your midst. Then you will know that Yahweh Sabaoth has what? Has what? Sent me to you. Who's talking? Yahweh. Yahweh. Yahweh is the eternal one. He's the creator of the heavens and the earth. And Yahweh declares that Yahweh Sabaoth is going to send him. Does that boggle your brain? It boggles my brain. Turn with me back to Isaiah 48. Keep your finger here because we'll come back to it. But Isaiah 48 is such a crucial passage. I believe in the triunity of God, not because of the New Testament but because it is declared in the Old Testament and then it is expounded upon in the New Testament. Isaiah 48, beginning at verse 12. Listen to me, O Jacob, in Israel my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Indeed, my hand has laid the foundation of the earth and my right hand has stretched out the heavens when I called to them and they stand together. Who is talking? God. God's talking. Yahweh. All of you assemble yourselves and hear. Who among them has declared these things? Yahweh loves him. He shall do his pleasure on Babylon and his arm shall be against the Chaldeans. I, even I, have spoken. Yes, I have called him. I have brought him and his way will prosper. God says that God's called, that he called Babylon to do his pleasure, to to spank Israel. That he has a right to do that. He's the king of kings. Verse 16. Come near to me, Hear this, I have not spoken in secret from the beginning. From the time that it was, I was there. From the time that it was, I was there. Who's talking? Yahweh. Yahweh. And now Yahweh Adonai and his spirit have sent me. Yahweh Adonai and Yahweh Ruach sent Yahweh. I get three out of that. I don't know about you. That's Old Testament. That's Old Testament. That's kind of mind-boggling. I can't comprehend the Godhead. I'm not here to tell you that I got it all settled. I'm a mortal man. I'm finite. The eternal, as a math major, infinity drives me bonkers. My head spins and spins and spins and spins and spins. I can't stand it. i got to stop and say, God, I can't handle this. I can't. Com- I'm a body, a soul, and a spirit. I can't comprehend that. I can't comprehend. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Yes, you do. No, you don't. Stop. I can't comprehend how the battle goes on in my own body. Do you get that? How can I comprehend God? But I'm made in His image and His likeness. I'm a spirit being because God is a what? Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship Him. And spirit and truth. Do you get it? It's an amazing thing. I have a body which relates to the earth. I have a soul which relates to people. I have a spirit which relates to God. Animals don't have that spirit. Animals have a body, they have a soul, but they don't have a spirit. Plants, they have a body, but they don't have a soul, they don't have a spirit. God made us in his image and likeness. How cool is that? And God has revealed in his word what he is like. And throughout all of his creation, he puts these threes out there to continually represent who he is. And we're told in Romans chapter 1, what may be known of his Godhead has been revealed in his very creation. So men are without excuse because all they knew the truth they suppressed it they chose not to believe it it's here it's so clear it's written right here for us i mean you guys saw it as we read it i'm not high i'm not making it up i mean i get try to get the the, the mormons to read isaiah 43:10 and isaiah 48 you know and they're like you're setting me up i said no i'm really not i said in a sense i yes, i am but i just want you to what read god's word and you tell me what god's word says if that's setting you up, then I'm setting you up. I'm not interpreting it. Just you tell me what it says. We're not going to go to these other... We'll get to the other one in Zechariah chapter 8 in a few weeks. But in Zechariah 8, we see the exact same thing. We need to fly on. The possession of Yahweh, in the end, Judah will be his inheritance. God has declared that Israel is his. He will once again choose Israel, and he will come and he will set up his... His residence there. What's very exciting, Revelation chapter 11, Revelation 11, go and check me out. In Revelation 11, beginning of verse 1, we read about a temple being rebuilt in Jerusalem. It's already there. And the measuring line is there to measure it. There's a whole lot of debate going on about the temple mount right now. Trying to figure out where they can build that temple. I don't have time to get into all that. That's exciting stuff for me. That's very... And you got to understand, you can go to templeinstitute.org, I think it is, Am I right? Anybody remember that? Yes. Okay. And you can see they've got everything ready for the temple. They've got it all. They've got a priesthood that's been set aside for a whole generation. They are cleansed. They've got the, the altar of burnt sacrifices already ready. They've got all the utensils already ready. All they're missing is the temple. I'm telling you, everything is ripe. It's sitting here. I mean, the fruit is like like falling off the trees, guys. This ought to be something that that is thrilling and exciting to us. We ought to be, of all men, the ones who are studying God's word. So, what is your view of the future of Israel? What is your view of God? They really go together in my brain. Because what you say about Israel is really what you indicate about God. Who is Yahweh to you? Is he your shepherd? Psalm 23, Yahweh is... My shepherd, he wants to have this personal relationship with you. He's not just this God who's out there. He is intricately involved with his people. Jesus said, this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, in Jesus Christ whom you sent. It's about this personal relationship thing. It's not about this, this you know, kind of standoff study of God, theology. No, it's knowing God and, and what, he's, what he's all about. Is there a need to change the way you think and therefore change the way you act? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your love. Thank you for your goodness to us. Oh, it's so amazing to me as I read your word and I see specifically specific passages like this, Lord, where you have declared so clearly that you are going to come and you're going to live on this earth. God in the flesh. Just It's mind-boggling to me, Lord. I, I, I can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend how you, who are the eternal one, who, you who created the entire universe, which we can't even measure, how you brought yourself, not only as a baby, not as a man, but Lord, as a zygote, as a one cell within Mary, and, and how, you, how you allowed that to grow and to be born and to live for 30 years and then to proclaim your message and to allow yourself to be crucified In order that you could be raised from the dead, in order that you would be able to pay the penalty of my sins. Lord, you are so awesome. Forgive us, Lord, for taking all that for granted. Lord, we live ho hum lives. We get so caught up in in today, we worry about uh, whether we're going to put apple butter on our toast or whether we're going to put grape jelly on our toast. Lord, we we get upset about what pair of shoes we have to wear. Lord, we we, we get concerned over whether um, we have air conditioning in our cars. (laughs) there's such an eternal thing going on right in front of us, and I miss it. We miss it all the time. Oh, God, forgive us for that. Help us to hunger for you. Help us to be overwhelmed by who you are to give you the glory that you rightly deserve. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.